This is the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel, bringing you the best tactical and statistical analysis of Liverpool FC. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Analyzing Anfield. I'm Josh Williams, and I'm joined by David Hughes. How are you doing, mate? I'm okay, thank you, Josh. Good, we're back to normal this week. Last week, we obviously had a special with Analyzing Everton included. Um, for those who are regular listeners of the show will know that we had an episode yesterday as well, a special 20 minutes episode on Van Dyke's injury. Today we're back to normal, so talking about the derby, sadly. Um, <laughs> talking about Ajax, who we face tomorrow night, we're recording on Tuesday. And talking about Sheffield United as well. Um, so, considering we've got three games, we'll get straight into it. Hmm. Um, the Merseyside derby, Dave. Mm. I have done what I can to try and forget it. So you'll probably have to, you know, bring a lot of the thoughts back for me. But um, mm. what, what, what were your thoughts on the game? How, how the game played out? Was that <laughs> as, you, as you expected, you know, all that sort of stuff? Uh, I don't know. I, I knew there was a risk that, um, you know, from an Everton perspective, I knew there was a risk that Liverpool could be really at it. And I think within a couple of minutes, it was pretty obvious that they were. But Liverpool looked fantastic. That first goal was just constructed brilliantly. Um, actually, feared at that point. I thought, you know, this could end up being about three, maybe four nil. Um, obviously, the the Van Dyke injury just, I think, changed things a little bit um, because obviously, this, because of what happened, a big player getting injured, the circumstances, you not know, a really rubbish challenge. Um, I think that upset Liverpool's rhythm a little bit and Everton grew into the game. But I'd say overall, I thought Liverpool were, were the better side. Um, you know, they, they looked they looked really good on the ball. Um, I thought Everton still offered something, looked dangerous. It was a competitive game, but I thought for me, Liverpool, actually, I thought they looked the, um, the better side. And yeah, for me, you could probably see the two differences between the two teams and that. Um, Liverpool just looked really comfortable at that relentless pace. Um, whereas I thought one or two Everton plays didn't. I think of like Andre Gomez a few times, he wanted to take an extra touch or he got caught on the ball where it felt like Liverpool were really, you can tell they've been playing at that top level for a while now. Um, so yeah, you know, in all, I thought it was a good game. Liverpool edged it performance-wise for me. Yeah. I would agree, to be honest. I think I was really impressed with Liverpool, really happy with the response. Obviously, we got speed 7-2. So, going into this game, Merseyside Derby, you need that response. That response was firmly there for me. I thought Liverpool won the performance on the day. Um, I wasn't that surprised. I mean, there was points where Liverpool was just really, really fluid. And at Goodison Park in the past few years, we haven't been able to play like that. I'm not really sure why. Um I actually read a tweet as well. I think it said um, it was the first time at Goodison that Everton have faced Liverpool's front three or, or something like that. Um, yeah, that sounds right. That could be one of the reasons why Liverpool have struggled to be fluid. Mm. Um, but as you said, you know, the first goal summed it up really. One touch football through the lines, um, adding lots of value with your passes. And obviously the goal I thought was really good and I thought Liverpool were going to push on and Liverpool got done sort of thing by by moments really, which hasn't really been the case. You, you can't really do Liverpool with moments, but Everton did. Um, but, you know, the numbers on the day, if you were to show me these numbers before the match was played, I'd, I'd expect Liverpool to win based on these numbers. Um, so the expected goals, 2.2 for Liverpool, 1.3 for Everton. And Liverpool doubled the number of shots. So Liverpool took 22 shots. Everton took 11. Mm. Um, we did say before the match that Everton don't take that many shots, but when they do, they're quite clear cut. I think Everton probably lived up to that. If you look at Everton's shot map, they didn't take that many. Um, but they did have, according to understand, at least three relatively clear cut, four relatively clear cut chances. Mm in and around the penalty spot, especially the two goals. Um, yeah, it's just disappointing that, that Liverpool couldn't get the three points on on this occasion. 
Yeah, well, it's, it's one of them, isn't it? Let's, I mean, let's be frank about it. We don't need to be polite. On another day, you know, they do get the three points for two reasons. One, obviously, Everton lose the goalkeeper through a red card. Um, I think 1-0 down with 10 men, losing your keeper with, what, 80 minutes still to go. I think it's very difficult at that point. You saw how Chelsea struggled against uh, 11v10 a few weeks ago, didn't we? Especially with someone like Thiago on the pitch. So that could have been one. And then obviously the the offside at the end, which was really controversial. I still don't quite get what's gone on. But Mane's been deemed offside. Uh, but if that doesn't happen, then that's a that's a, a 3-2 victory. So, yeah, it's one of them where at Liverpool have had to settle for a point. I think the performance, he probably warranted to edge it. Uh, as I said, they did have chances, you know, beyond the goals. They had that with Charles and Head that hits the post. They did create stuff, but I think if we looked at it as a collective performance, you know, Liverpool were the better side or maybe in, in a different set of circumstances, wouldn't won the game and, and the end, they just they didn't. Yeah, I will be honest, Evan, Everton felt felt threatened in certain moments. They didn't always get the shot away, but they, there was a few occasions where they, they did get maybe a little bit behind Liverpool's high line. They got into the final third. I was really impressed with Calvert-Lewin. I thought Calvert-Lewin was superb from start to finish mm-hmm. in terms of the way he linked with his teammates, the way he used the ball, the way he occupied Liverpool's defence. He obviously scored was with one of the few decent chances he was presented with. So I think he, he did come across as a top striker, to be honest. So mm-hmm. a, lot, a lot to look forward there too for, for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> in terms of the referee and decisions, obviously there's... there's there was a few controversial calls, let's say, but we analyse football. We're not going to analyse referees. It's just not what this show is about, is it? So yeah. we're going to leave that for other podcasts. You know, people can moan about that as much as they want. But you mentioned Thiago there. Thiago started on the left of Liverpool's midfield. Um, what did you think of him? What did you think of him in that role? I thought he was ridiculous on the day, to be honest. I... Um... So a few weeks ago, I wrote a piece after the Chelsea game um, and I was really apprehensive about writing it actually because I was concerned that people were going to think I was putting Thiago down and I wasn't. So hopefully I got that across. Um, But basically I said in the piece, you know, Thiago stole all the headlines after this Chelsea win. But the reality is it wasn't that great of a performance. Like I know he, 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 I think he's, completed the most passes of any player in 45 minutes in Premier League uh, history, which you know, was a really quick. He started something nice to have under your belt. But if you actually look at the passes, it would do a lot of, you know, sideways, keeping the ball movement, moving against the side, sitting really deep. Wasn't that much in terms of penetration. And in the piece I said, basically, you know, Thiago did okay, but he's capable of so much more. And I thought that at Goodison on Saturday, he produced a you know pretty much a Thiago masterclass for me. Um, I followed up. Thankfully, I've been able to follow up on that piece now. With look, this game on Saturday, this is the Thiago that you know we're gonna we're gonna see at Liverpool. Um, I thought he was penetrative. You know, he was so press resistant. He was great with the ball his feet. He was he had that vision that we talked about on this show when he signed. You know, if you think of that Henderson goal later on that gets ruled out, the ball to Mane there is just fantastic. Um, there's a moment I remember where he latches onto a little through pass from Robertson and he's pressured by Allen, who's obviously Everton's best ball winner midfielder. And he just kind of body shimmies and flicks it rounds and gets away from him, dribbles all the way into the, the final third. I just, honestly, Josh, I thought he was head and shoulders at times better than other players on the pitch. I did as well. I thought at, at times, specifically in the start yeah. of the match, the first 15 minutes, he ba- he actually barely touched the ball, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was I was questioning whether these suitors to the, to the left-sided role where Wilder would usually play, but um, he, he he grew into the game, I think would be the word, to the extent that you know around the hour mark, he was basically controlling the game, really. Just on your point before you carry on, Josh, it is. I did notice this morning that he completed one less pass in this game against Everton than he did against Chelsea, despite playing, you know, a full ninety oh, minutes. Yeah. But it just shows, doesn't it, that really it's sometimes it's it's not always about quantity; it's about what you know the kind of quality of the ball and the impact it has on the game. 
Yeah, well, I think one of the very, 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 very few positives that we're going to get out of Van Dijk being injured is I think Fabinho is going to drop into the defence and that will allow Thiago to take up a central role at the you know the pivot of Liverpool mm-hmm. midfield, which I think is where he belongs, to be honest. I think he's such a controller um, and his, his vision and his passing range all over the pitch is just brilliant. So I feel like you're nullifying him a little tiny bit if you put him on the left. Um, even though a few months ago when we spoke about him, I did see him as being our Wijnaldum, kind of keeping the ball ticking over, keeping possession. But what he do over Wijnaldum is the odd bit of penetration, like like the Mane pass for the offside goal at the end. Wijnaldum doesn't really have that in his locker. Very few players do, to be honest, the way he disguised mm-hmm. that pass. Caused a lot of players off guard on the pitch. It is, that disguise, um, it's just, it's, it's unbelievable, really, isn't it, how he does it? No, yeah, it's, he's only really played about, you know, 150 minutes for Liverpool or something like that at the minute. And he's, he's done a disguised pass like that that's caught opponents off guard. He's done that a few times already, about at least five times already. And it, it, it really does add so much value, really speeds up your attack in an instant. Hmm. Um, and it really is valuable. So in terms of him moving towards the centre and Fabinho dropping back into the defence, that's something, to be honest, I'm looking forward to seeing. I think Fabinho is a capable centre-back. And I think Thiago, the control that will lose with Van Dijk missing, I think Thiago will, will instigate with the ball, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of in terms of Everton, we previewed Hannes last week. He was a concern for me. Mm-hmm. And he was a concern in the game. <laughs> yeah. uh, there was a moment... you remember the switches of play that I mentioned? Yeah. There was a moment where he played a ridiculous switch. Lucas Dean gets on the end of it and the ball got put across. I think Richarlison hit the post maybe or something like yeah. that. But th- that was basically the moment I was fearing. I was fearing him doing exactly that. Mm. There was a moment where he, he got the ball on the edge of the box as well, the corner of the box, and he just got a sandwich out and, and pitched it towards the back <laughs> post. Mm. He, he is a player like him. I thought he was a, a real threat for Liverpool. Yeah, he is. He's, um, you know, anyone even doubts how good he is, because you know, I think there was doubts out there, kind of seeing him as a, you know, somebody who did it in the World Cup a few years ago has been living off reputation a little bit. But I think we've we've seen now in in that game and in all of his all of his games really so far that he's for me, you know, if we just put aside the tactical intricacies because you can't just drop any player in a team, you know, it's got to be the right fit in, with the whatever system they play. But for me. He could he, he could play at any level, like he could play at any club. For me, I think he is that good. So for Everton to have him is just phenomenal, really. Um, I'd said before on this show last week, he contributed to eight of Everton's 12 league goals. It's now 10 and 14 because obviously he he puts the assist, he gets the assist for Michael Keane's header. And then the Calvert Lewin goal, it's his really good through ball that Luca Dean runs onto and then obviously crosses into the box for Calvert Lewin to equalise. So yeah, that's the that's the biggest thing for me beyond everything that he does that looks good. Like, you know, his composure on the ball, the way he seems to have eyes in the back of his head. He also just has this con- genuine contribution inside the final third as well. And uh, you know, it's uh, I, that for me was a bit of like a, a proper test to see how he get on against the, the best of the best in Liverpool. And obviously he didn't have a he, he didn't run riot by any stretch because no player would, but He's certainly, you know, impressed, I think, against a, a top, top side. It, it felt like every time Liverpool were under any kind of threat, every time Liverpool were opened up a little bit, he was kind of central to it. Hmm. Um, I think even, even the, as you just said, then, I think you, you might have just mentioned it, but he, even the second goal to Digne Cross, Hammers hmm. feeds him, doesn't he? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just thought I'd give him a mention because there's individual... Attacking players, particularly players who are playing a little bit deeper, don't tend to have much of a game against Liverpool. Uh, I think Grealish did last week, to be fair. But I think Hammers had one at Goodison Park, so I just thought I'd give him a shout. Mm. In terms of the goalkeepers, <laughs> we obviously previewed the goalkeepers quite a lot last week. I was yeah. terrified going into the game. Uh, 
Basically, what, what were your thoughts on, on Eddie? Um, I I didn't think he'd done that great, to be honest. People seem to be quite saying, you know, he'd done all right. I, I don't think he got, you know, he didn't get bombarded with shots on target to really test him. And I think he, he makes a mistake for, for Keynes. And I can probably elaborate on that a little bit more because I've seen people defending him for the... Um, it just so happens I was watching Sky Sports this morning while I was working on a piece and they had uh, Robert Green on who you know I've was, seen it in really oh did you see it what, what no, it was no, fantastic no, no. Oh, each week I see his analysis though, from some other weeks and he is top class the way he does it I didn't see this week though isn't he you know what Josh just on that point really quickly sorry I don't mean take us down a rabbit hole people who listen to him and watch him but I just, I just want to agree I was watching it and thought his analysis is is top work. Like it's really good analysis. Um, I, I definitely listen and watch him a little bit more. But he talks about he talks about Allison. Um, not Allison. You wish it was Allison. <laughs> he talks about Adrian, and um, yeah, he basically says that um, what happens is Andre Gomez is distracting Adrian as he's waiting for the uh, the cross to come in. And then he's still kind of distracted with Gomez as the ball's mid-flight uh, and enters the box. And um, so he's he's only about maybe three yards off his line as this is all happening. But then he then realizes the threat and starts to retreat to his line. Um, but he's still moving by the time Keane latches onto the header. So then when Keane's actually headed it and it's on his way towards him, his his feet still aren't planted in the ground. They're still in the air. So that's kind of why I think you see this almost th- this gap between him and the floor and why he can't seem to push that ball away um, when it comes. Because if you have a look where it goes in, it looks bad, doesn't it? It looks like he should be able to parry that over the bar and he doesn't, but it's because his feet aren't planted because he's still moving back. And he showed, you know, I don't want to, I'm not sitting giving Pickford any credit on an, um, on a Liverpool podcast, but he, he showed a similar one for Pickford with the Matip save which I thought was one of Pickford's better saves on the day. And what he does is he he seems to retreat, retreat to his line very quickly and has his feet planted as Mata heads the ball. And then that, that allows him to then, you know, dive or, or make, the, make the save or have the energy to do so, or whichever terminology you use. But I thought it was really good insight and it probably explains a little bit better why Adrian struggled to, to keep that one out from Keane. Yeah, my big issue with Adrian, funnily enough, isn't even his, his shot stopping. It's his actual his actual goalkeeping. It's it's the way he can just create moments of panic out of nowhere, um, bad decisions out of nowhere. Basically, what he did last week, first goal against Villa, mm. the, the, the gift that he presents to Grealish or Watkins or whoever it might have been. That that's my bigger concern with Adrian. So the fact that he had a match without one of them, and a fairly high profile match without one of them as well, mm. I come away from it thinking, okay, fine, You'll I'm not for it. To, yeah, I'll settle for it genuinely. Mm. When, when the first one went in, I wish I could say that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, when it comes to our analysis, I will say that we're a lot more qualified to, to analyze players as opposed to goalkeepers. I think mm. analyzing goalkeepers is a specialist thing. Um, and Robert Green's clearly very good at it. When the first goal went in, and you know it's off the corner and it, it go, it, it kind of bends Adrian's hands back. It's not great, but at the same time, I, I didn't overly want to criticise him because there was quite a bit of power on the on the header, mm. and it was quite close to goal. So, you know, the, the people I was watching the game were making claims towards it, but I just kept my mouth shut because I wasn't really sure on that one. Um, and the second one that goes in, my first thought was it, again it was a good header, but my first thought was towards the Pickford one with Matip. Mm. Um, and Pickford saved, I thought, a very similar shot about 10 15 minutes earlier, Matip from the corner. Um, but in terms of the doing negative things out of nowhere thing. Pickford was probably worse on the day in terms of the absolutely daft dropkick on Van Dijk mm. um, and the the last minute 
conceding a goal to Henderson where the ball rolls over his hand and it, it gets given as offside. So I thought Pickford got away with two really massive moments. But his actual shot stopping on, they probably dwarfed Adrian. So it was, you know, 50-50 really, like, between the two of them. Yeah, I think that was a that was just a, a classic Pickford performance for me. I mean, you take out the... The, yeah, what's what turned out to be a scissor kick on on Van Dyke, but you know, it, again, and, and Green, Robert Green actually touched on that, and I thought he done some really good analysis on that as well. And he runs through the whole move, and what seems to happen is the ball's high, looping over. Pickford look starts coming out, spots Van Dyke, goes to pause as if maybe he was going to retreat to his line, realizes he wouldn't get there in time, so then tries to close Van Dyke down, but the. He's, he's, he's like, you know, the way keepers kind of do this star dive. He's doing that, but he's doing it while the ball's still in the air. So he's, it's just, it's just so uncontrolled, uncontrolled. And you think if Van Dyke's not offside and it was tight, it's a penalty that he's conceded. Forget the red card for the minute, which it obviously would have been. It's a penalty conceded. You, you know, Mo Salah steps up. For me, I always fancy Mo Salah from the penalty spot. I think we've had this conversation, haven't we, in a uh, WhatsApp? But I always do. And so I think suddenly you're looking at 2 0, uh, 10 minutes gone. Probably throwing the red card as well, 2 0, 10 minutes, game over. And that would have been all on Pickford. So that's him all over. But then in the same game, he pulls off really good saves. And that's always been his thing. He, he, he'll he pull off great saves in most games, but it's just the other aspects that, that kill you. Um, and yeah, so I probably agree. I'd say. Now, Adrian didn't do a whole lot wrong. He should have done better maybe for the first goal, not in terms of just, you know, plant his feet and things, but he didn't give you any of those chaotic moments that could have cost you the game outright. Yeah, obviously, we've just mentioned there that, that Liverpool obviously did concede two headers. Um, is that a sign of things to come regarding Van Dijk mm-hmm. being absent? Remains to be seen. For those that weren't, weren't aware of what I said earlier, it is a full 20-minute podcast, we, we talk about all those potential problems that might occur um, without Van Dyke for the next seven, eight months, whatever it's going to be. So, you know, do check that one out. But we're going to, we're going to leave the derby there because it's, to be honest, I wanted to get away from it. I, I don't think it's been, <laughs> even just the reaction on the likes of Twitter and stuff, it's just been absolutely. Uh, I must say, I, uh, I've said it to you, haven't I? I've, I've really struggled over these last few days because. Especially in this position, and you're you're the same because you 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 do the same for you know analysing Everton. I found it so difficult because every it's just so toxic toxic on either side, and um, it's just not enjoyable. It's really not. And I I tweeted about Everton's performance with nothing offensive about Liverpool at all. I actually complimented Liverpool, saying how good they were, and I had people coming at me over it and. It's just, it's just not nice. You know, I'm glad that the derby's done and get back to talking about Liverpool, you know, and just analysing the football side of things. And, um, yeah, it was just really toxic. And, it, you know, I hope it doesn't stay like this for the next few years because, you know, I just, I don't want it to be like that, especially in our position when we're, you know, we, we want to try and just objectively talk about both teams on the pitch, forget everything else. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. I've wanted Liverpool to face Ajax for a few years, to be honest. Um, one of the reasons was to go over there, but <laughs> I was just that's, thinking that. that's off limits at the minute, really, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, have you got any thoughts on them? I, I, I feel like they're va- vaguely in the same group as when we've previewed Leeds on the first day of the season and when we've previewed maybe Salzburg to an extent. Mm-hmm. I think they're a bit less mental than those two teams. But in terms of having a, an idealistic approach, um, quite offensive-minded, possession-based, won't really be phased by their whole you've got better players than us thing. I think it's it's going to be one of them again, really, isn't it? Yeah, that's it. They've got like you know a, a set philosophy that kind of stays in place no matter no matter who they play. Even though um, Ten Hag is kind of an advocate of it, it's a philosophy that is 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 rife throughout the club at all levels, isn't it? So you kind of brought up on it. 
over there. Um, so yeah, Liverpool kind of know what they're gonna what they're gonna face. Um, there won't be no adaptation to kind of sit back and you know try and get away with a nil nil draw or anything like that. So yeah, it's um, I do think it's interesting when you play when you play sides like that, you know, because they tend to touch wood be quite entertaining games, uh, especially when Liverpool involved. I can see that to be honest. Like, I can see a few goals like um, at both ends too, considering Liverpool's good in defence at the minute. Um, but in terms of the league this season for Ajax in the Dutch Eredivisie, they've played five, won four, lost one, 11 goals scored and three conceded. And I wrote a newsletter a few weeks back, sent that out on the Liverpool's Champions League group. Funnily enough, we haven't actually talked about that, I don't think. No, we should have, we probably should have done a little pod on it, actually, maybe. You, maybe. I don't think it was, I think. Actually, I don't know. I can't remember. Um, maybe it was. No, I'm never there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we can, we can get to it anyway now that the Champions League is starting up. So, hmm. But in, in terms of Ajax, I sent one out a few weeks back. Just, you know, analysing their games, stuff like that, what they're about. And in terms of the numbers that they posted last season in, in the league, obviously the massive caveat here is that it's the Dutch Eredivisie. But they did come across as kind of the lead United of that league in terms of just dominating every single number, really. Goals, shots, shots against, expected goals, expected goals against, possession, all that dominant stuff. It's just a bit of a different game, isn't it, when you come into Europe? I think when they've come into Europe, they've played a bit more of a transition game. But if they play a transition game, you know, the word transition, I just think of, I just think of Jürgen Klopp. So mm. it, it, it might be one of those kind of, uh, you have a go, we have a go sort of games. Yeah. I, I think, funny enough, I did have a quick look, only using White Scout data, just isolated the European fixes last year. And um, I think it got skewed a little bit because there was that, you know, crazy game against Chelsea where it was a four-all. I think White Scouts, I'd like Chelsea with next year, like over five. But um, it does seem to level out a little bit. The um, In terms of goals, the average 1.75 uh, to 1.08 conceded. So the better in that department. Shots, 13.5 13, 13 per 92, 10.75 per 90. But then XG is pretty much on the nose. It's 1.59 versus 1.53. So, you know, it does seem that when they come up against better sides in Europe, it does, that dominance does seem to level out, which is kind of what we'd expect, isn't it, really? Yeah. When you look at the way this team play, I'd say that their brand of football is almost kind of the, the crux of why Jürgen Klopp has his brand of football, really. If you think of the way Klopp started his career and specifically the way the time he spends at Borussia Dortmund and, and things like that, you know, you you're coming up you're coming up against giants in, in Bayern Munich. When he comes to Liverpool, you're coming up against the likes of Manchester City and, and teams like that. So I think he's always thrived with a bit of an an underdog philosophy club, whereby you know you can have the ball, but we will make you make a mistake on the ball and then we'll punish you by scoring. Hmm. Um, that's kind of gone away a little bit at Liverpool with time because Liverpool have just become more and more dominant. But I think teams like this, Barcelona also comes to mind, Manchester City to an extent, um, teams that basically want the ball. I think but those teams, Klopp is more than willing to basically allow them to have it and, and, and we will just kind of go back to our transition routes almost and pressure into the ground before score before scoring on a counter press. Um and I think we might might see a few of them in this game, the likes of Mane and Salah punishing like a, a defensive mistake from I don't know, the likes of Daily Blinds who's who's still playing for them. Yeah, that's it. Because yeah, the thing that I always think, although it's considered a positive, it can be used as a weakness against you is when you when you lack that kind of unpredictability because you know most sides know how you're gonna play because you have such a now, I think this happens has happened to City in the past where you kind of know what to expect with City because they're so regimented in the kind of you know, Pep's so regimented in the philosophy that he deploys that it's it's a lot easier to kind of prepare the game plan really. Uh, I do think that's been Ajax's downfall sometimes in Europe is that, you know, sometimes facing European sides, it does even now 
despite all the access to data and video that scouts and analysis will have, there's, there still is sometimes that element of doubt as to how what you're going to come, going to come up against. But with Ajax, it isn't there, is it really? And that could play into into Liverpool's hands. Yeah, I mean, even even the people who who never really watch Dutch football or or European football, most people know what Ajax is about. You know, mm-hmm. we, we can't really preview them that much because people probably know what to expect anyway because mm. it's Ajax isn't it it's it's the philosophy for football club mm. in terms of a few of the players that they've got there they've got um Quincy Proms as I hope hope I've said that right uh Liverpool were linked with him a few years back actually he was at Spartak Moscow I think yeah. um quite a tricky winger he was at the time but he's actually playing as number 10 for Ajax uh, Dusan Tadic, who again Liverpool were linked with him a few years ago. I think he's a really good player. Dusan yeah. Tadic, really creative player, uh, un- unpredictable, good in transition. Um, and I've got David Neres as well, who I think has also been linked to both Liverpool and Everton, maybe mm. in the past few few windows. Yeah. Um, quick attack. Surprised he hasn't had the move. Yeah, so am I. Good in uh, transition, that's all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I mean that th- they form. Basically, the crux of the attack of Ajax's four-two-three-one. Mm. Um, I'm I'm not really sure that there's that there's that much more to add regarding Ajax. I think it's 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 a, a pretty easy match. I think to to play out in your head before it, before it actually takes to the field. Mm. Um, have you got any verdict on this one in terms of how you expect it to play out? Where you think the game will be won and lost, and you know potential scores and all that sort of stuff. Hmm. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I think I think that definitely. I think Ajax will create chances because I think just the way the philosophy works and they're so fine tuned that they do tend to break through sides. But you know, I, from a defensive point of view, I just think these teams struggle against the power of Liverpool. Like, I don't know the average age off the top of my head, but you know, I know that. Like, I mean, I think Tadic is getting on a bit, isn't he? But. I, if you a lot of the other players in that team are, are normally early twenties, you know, just come out late teens, kind of getting prepared for probably a bigger future at other clubs elsewhere. Um, I do just think that that makes them a little bit more vulnerable to being overpowered by um, by stronger sides like Liverpool. So I I, I can't look past Liverpool at all. Um, you know, I'm, I'm expecting maybe a maybe even you know a, a two or three nil win. No, I'm gonna actually no, I'm not gonna go for the clean sheets. I'm gonna say I'm gonna say two one. Yeah, I, I was gonna say then you're a brave man going for a clean no, sheet. There. No, I've learned my lesson quickly. <laughs> <laughs> uh just a little bit on, on what you've just said there in terms of the ages of the IX players. Mm. So just this season, um going on minutes played for Ajax. So just going from the most minutes played downwards. You've got a twenty-four-year-old, then you've got a thirty-one and a thirty-year-old. That's Blint and Tadic. I think mm. they're the two experienced players in the squad. And then you've got twenty-two. I think Prom might actually be twenty-eight there, unless I'm seeing things. I'm just going to uh, make a lie of me. <laughs> Twenty-year-old, twenty-eight in Tagliafico, twenty, twenty-two, twenty, eighteen. So, you no, know, I think I think the spot on. And I think yeah. specifically when it comes to the athletic capacity of Ajax, the physical side, um, in comparison to Liverpool, I think to an extent we can we can bully them in certain mm-hmm. areas, set pieces, mm-hmm. aerial battles, and stuff like that. I think the ball tends to spend most of the time on the floor in Holland, um, and it's a little bit different in England. Shame we have and like playing. <laughs> yeah, but I, I was about to say on that point though. I think even even with even Liverpool's, um traditionally smaller players so to speak are still just so strong and physical like Sadio yeah. Mane most Sally you know they're just they're so hard to get off the ball and they do tend to you know bully most players they come up against um, which I think is maybe just a, a consequence of playing in the in the Premier League you know for several years yeah in terms of my my verdict I think I'm going to go I'm going to go Liverpool win and I'm going to I'm going to say it's going to be quite an entertaining game with Liverpool mainly thriving through punishing Ajax when Ajax is trying to build from the back, basically. So I think I'm going to say 
3-1 to Liverpool. Um, but that could be 3-2 or 4-1. <laughs> I think <laughs> it, it, it could be a bit of a crazy one. I'm not ruling that out at all. Basically um, going with, uh, with goals, but Liverpool to score more than Ajax. Yeah, I'd say Liverpool to score double the amount that Ajax scored. Probably. Okay. Uh, but yeah, we should be in for a good match there. And then a team that are probably opposite end of the scale, mm. Sheffield United, who'll be facing next week. Uh, they've had a bad start, Dave. Mm. Yeah, they have. Um, have they, I don't think they've won yet, have they, so far this season? No, they've got no. one point all season, and I think that was yeah. gained the other day against Fulham. And even in that game, they were relatively lucky because they went a goal down with 15 minutes left, I think. Yeah. So I think, you know, their main issue just seems to be what woes and attack, doesn't it? They just can't seem to put the ball in the back of the net. I don't know how many goals they've scored off the top of my head. Um, but I know it's it won't be a lot. In fact, I have a quick look now. Um, so goals for, they have scored two at the bottom of the league. There you go, yeah. That, that sums it up. Um, no team the, has scored fewer than that. Yeah. So, yeah, they, they, they look... A, a little bit disjointed. I must admit, I don't expect them to stay in this form. Not, I'm not saying I expect them to push on and replicate what they did last season. Um, but I just think they're a little bit disjointed at the moment. But they've got they've brought in the likes of Brewster. Um, I think they will find a little bit of rhythm eventually. But yeah, they just. I don't think they they do enough at the at the attacking end of the pitch and. At the end of the day, that's where games are won and lost, aren't they? Scoring goals. I've gone very, uh, gone very Gillette Soccer Saturday with that comment, but <laughs> it, it, it is true. Um, I don't think they've suddenly become a really bad team overnight. It's just, I expect them to be kind of mid to bottom half, um, kind of loitering around that relegation zone this season. Yeah, I think if you look at the numbers, obviously it's very early days, but even last season, I think, I think their numbers are about placing them between maybe 10th and 16th, maybe 15th, in, a, in and around that area, really. This season, I think I think they've been on the, on the wrong side of variance, to be honest. I think they've had a bit of bad luck there. Like, uh, John Egan's red card against, I think it might have been Aston Villa. I thought it was harsh. But You're just saying that because he was in your fancy football team. Little <laughs> 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 minus one there. Absolutely useless. <laughs> That sounds fair enough next week. <laughs> um, but I do, I do think they've been a little bit unlucky. Like I think they've, I think their expected goals against is better than the, the number of goals they've actually conceded. Mm. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd expect them to improve, but not not that much. I, I still think I, I think this season they'll be worse off than last season. Fully enough, in terms of the the final position, I think they'll finish outside the top ten this season. Um, if you look at the number of shots that they've taken so far, they've taken 40, which is the joint fewest, same as West Brom. Um, Liverpool, for perspective, have taken 94. Um, so that's more than double Sheffield United. I think last season, Sheffield United took the fewest shots, I think, in the whole league. Maybe Crystal Palace took fewer. I think it's out of them too, for the bottom two. Mm. And um, their expected goals against isn't as bad though that's where they get the results really isn't it the, the defence back five don't really tend to concede many and I think they're expected goals into this season places them about I think that's eighth eighth about eighth in the league um, which obviously isn't enough to be bottom of the league or to be to be standing on one point that should get them points more often than not mm. but obviously this season it has been a bit mental hasn't it with the number of goals scored yeah, and what I will say is just on that point you talk about the defence, that they're not a side who tend to get ever rolled over. Either. You know, it's always a tight game with them. Um, obviously, if they could score a little bit more, then that'd be a good thing, but they don't. But they still tend to make teams work really hard to, to score past them. Even if, I mean, I'm just having a quick look at the results now, and it's, it was Sheffield, what was it? Yeah, so the they, um, they drew with Fulham 1-1, got beat by Arsenal 2-1. Beat by Leeds 1 0. Villa beat them 1 0. Um, Wolves beat them 2 0. But even last season, I thought Liverpool were fantastic against them um, last season at Anfield. And that was still just a 2 0 game. Um, 
and then it was that Dean Henderson error, wasn't it? Bramall Lane last year, which kind of give Liverpool the win. Otherwise, that was had all the makings of a bit of a nil-nil. Even though Liverpool were the much better side, it was that was that was the difference between getting three points or one. Um, so I think they, they definitely do make you work hard for work hard for your goals against them. I've just came onto the results myself here, um, and if you look at if you look at the performance numbers, mm. they haven't. They haven't deserved to win any of the games so far, but you could argue they haven't deserved to lose either. Mm-hmm. Um, like every match, as you've said, has been really tight according to expected goals at least. So on the opening day of the season against Wolves, um, XG 0.6, Wolves posted 1.1. Against Villa, 0.9, Villa posted 1. Against Leeds, both teams posted 1.6. Against Arsenal, he posted 0.2, Arsenal posted 0.4, and against Fulham, he posted 1.4, Fulham posted 1.9. So it is really fine margins, and I think this is what I mentioned about the, them being on the wrong end of variance a little bit. Sometimes you'll get them going for you. Sometimes you'll get a fluke penalty and on goal, and it can it can turn the tide sort of thing. And I think Sheffield United have started the season suffering from a little bit of that, and I think. We keep mentioning this every now and then, and you can't put any kind of number on it. But I do think the lack of fans in the ground mm. feels like it impacts them more than mm. any other team for some reason. I don't know. I'm not really sure why. I can't really put my finger on that. But I do remember the. Um, I can't remember which player it was. It might have been Wild at the manager, but I don't think it was. I'm sure it was a player who did, you know, basically come out to say that. Said they're the type type of team who who thrive on it a little bit, um, and that's not even just a. A home game to say away games as well, and you've heard I've heard a few players say that you know it do you do kind of get that that buzz going into the lines then a little bit, and you know having it, this kind of mentality of them versus us, you know the world versus us. I think that does motivate teams, and Sheffield United are definitely one of those teams that I put in that bracket. And obviously, being without that, it, it suddenly becomes eleven versus eleven, and when you're in the inferior sides, more often than not, I think it does. It does start to impact because you know the psychological aspects of the game are really important. Um, even if others don't value them, I know we talk a lot about numbers, but we definitely value them, and they do seem to be a team who who get impacted a little bit, um, a little bit by it. It seems. I mean, you mentioned you mentioned Brewster earlier. We're going to have to talk about him because he could get his first start at Anfield. Funnily enough, uh, he came on against Fulham. With half an hour left, did you see him? Did you see a play? See the match? No, no, I didn't. I watched the game. Um, he didn't get a look in. Didn't get a chance. Um, mm. a few little stray passes looked a little bit lost. So it wasn't it wasn't the best half hour period to be introduced into. Considering he's been at Liverpool for so long, maybe Chris Wilder will look at Anfield as the home that he recognises. You'll know that if Sheffield United get any kind of chance to get a result, they will need to score them. Brewster, if he is anything, is a poacher and will put the ball in the back of the net when he's presented with a shot. So it'll be interesting to see if he starts. Um, do you think he's a threat for Liverpool or, or do you think he'll be easily managed? I'd start him personally. I, I think, think I would as well. I yeah. I, I think there's going to be a lot of motivation from his point of view to. Um, to score, you know, not because he wants to do any Liverpool any harm, but he obviously my, my outside impression of this whole deal of him going there is this kind of um, you know if you go out and you you tear it up, we're going to bring you back to Anfield on the buy buyback clause. So I think he'll be seeing this as almost like a, a, a you know a two year loan to go out score lots of goals, fine tune the game, and hopefully come back to Anfield. So we, we've actually got the buyback for three years, believe it or not. Oh, for three years. Oh, yeah. okay. Oh, there we go. So he's got yeah, good deal then, obviously. Um, but yeah, if he goes tears it up, he knows he can he can go and be potentially Liverpool's number nine, further down the line. Um, so what better chances he got to kind of start proving himself than going putting in a really good display against against Liverpool and hopefully scoring. Um, you know, he'll be thinking, you know, if I do that, then. 
they, that can't be ignored and they might already start regretting regretting the decision. Plus, by the way, they're, they're not scoring goals, so why wouldn't you put in a player who's who's got that yeah. threat? Yeah. I think, to be honest, though, ahead of the match, I'm a little bit more concerned about his partner um, because it's, it's probably going to be Ollie McBurney, I would guess. Hmm. He's really good in the air. And Van Dijk's bossed him for the past, well, last season. We, we played them twice. Sheffield United pose an aerial threat. A lot of their their way to get up the field and into the final third is a long ball to McBurney. And Van Dijk has, has been really, really good at nullifying that. Obviously, we don't have Van Dijk now. We still have players who are good in the air. But I think McBurney will be more of a problem now for Liverpool's defence. And I think moving forward for the season, to be honest, this will probably be a recurring theme whereby if we're, if we're playing a team that that me or Dave think this is a Van Dijk game, you know, we, we will flag it on the podcast. But this, considering that's at Anfield, it feels like it's going to be less less so, especially if Liverpool just dominate and control proceedings and stuff like that. But Sheffield United and Ollie McBurney, it, it does pose a little bit of a, you, you could do with Van Dijk in, in this game. Yeah, well, I mean, they've, I think only three players have attempted more headed shots this season and only four teams have attempted more crosses. So you can probably guess what they're going to try and do. And I agree, you know, Van Dijk, it's, it is bread and butter, like that kind of stuff. He normally wins the headers. You know, he he, he brings sort of the composure in the in Pills penalty area for the others to kind of maintain their own composure and clear the lines without too much kind of hassle. We're going to find out. It's probably actually a good test, to be honest, Josh, of for like without Van Dyke this game because it's, as yeah. you touched on, it's not too intense. It's not like you're going away from home um, against the side in really good form scoring lots of goals from crosses and headers, but it's a side that's got enough threat for you to, to kind of get a feel um, for for what you're going to face and maybe even hopefully just build a bit of confidence. So, you know, you do deal with these crosses and you win a few of these aerial duels, then it can add that confidence for the next few weeks. Yeah, well, one thing that I did notice before, just on the aerial stuff, is I'm not sure if you're aware of this, Dave, but when I was looking at the stats before, I was looking at aerial success for each team in the Premier League so far. Liverpool are actually bottom of the league for, um, for aerial success. Liverpool have only won 40.5% of the duels that they've contested. Uh, top mm-hmm. of the league is Chelsea winning 67.2%. Um, obviously, we're only a few games in and the number of aerial duels that Liverpool have contested is currently on about... 126, I think Liverpool have contested. We've lost 75 of them. Mm-hmm. Um, over the course of a full season, you'll contest over a thousand. But for Liverpool to be bottom of aerial dual success, it's quite weird. That I mean, last season I think we finished second for that. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Yeah. Is that a worry or you know? I, I don't know. I, I I must admit to be the worst. I am quite surprised. But I think if we try to contextualise it. I suppose, you know, that that includes attacking aerial duels as well, which obviously a lot harder to win. Um, Liverpool do a lot more ta- attacking than most teams. Um, you know, I think Liverpool put in the second most crosses in the Premier League so far. So I guess they, that probably skews the numbers a little bit. Um, and they probably do less defensive headers because they tend to dominate most matches. Um, but all that putting all that to one side, there probably is still an element that they're not maybe dominating the same way that they probably would like to um, in that department. But as you, you know, we'll, we'll probably find out in, in the next few weeks if that's just kind of a blip or if it's something to to look at and be concerned about. Yeah, it's one to keep an eye on because it's uh, quite some characteristic. Obviously, Liverpool put a lot of crosses, and as you say. We hit a lot of balls up the field with no intention of really winning the first challenge, but winning the second ball. Um, but for Liverpool to be bottom of the league, you know, a little bit weird. So we'll, we'll keep an eye on that one. Mm. Um, so I, I actually think just as a little side note for this game, a four-two-three-one might be on the cards. And the reason I think that is is because 
we know for certain Sheffield United will be playing a back five. And the Klopp sometimes goes for 4 3 3 1 against back five systems because the from the group of front four attackers can pin back the back five by occupying the channels between each player, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's a way of pinning back the back five. And obviously if if we're now going to have to use a midfielder in Fabinho in defence, and we've got Jota there ready to go and stuff like that, maybe Klopp will opt for I'm at home as well. Maybe Klopp will opt for four attackers. Midfield two, Fabinho in the back line sort of thing. Just considering it's, it's we're coming up against the back five at home and the way they're squad shaping up with Van Dijk's injury and stuff. I think I think it's one to keep an eye on that Liverpool will go for four two three one with with Jota starting. Yeah, I think it's the perfect opportunity to be honest. Yeah. I think it's the absolute perfect game. I think you know what you're going to expect from the opposite. Yeah, yeah. And you know, for where there's question marks over Shakiri, he does tend to come in and do a job, doesn't he? Um, I kind of think of the Merseyside derby last year where he hadn't really played and he came in and he, he scored, didn't he? Um, he had a fairly good game. So, um, yeah, I just think it is the perfect opposition at Anfield. You know, you know what you're going to get from them. They're not in great form. You, you may need to break them down a little bit more, which you could then do with that extra attacker on the pitch. Um, you've got a kind of really good candidate in Jota to come in from the start and, and be one of those attackers. Um, yeah, it just, it just seems the best bet. Um, providing Thiago's fit as well, it'd be good to have him in there, but I don't know if he's going to be. Um, yeah, well, I was, I was just thinking about the controlling aspect of it and... Mm-hmm. Maybe Klopp will be less inclined to play with a 4 3 one without Van Dijk in the back line. Mm. But if Thiago's playing, that gives you a bit more control. But it remains to be seen. It's just one maybe to keep an eye on for the match. Mm. Uh, so, verdict on this one then? Mm, tough one, actually. I um, I think it could be a little a tight one, actually. I think it'll be a tight Liverpool victory. Um, I'm going to go 2-0. Uh, as I said, just for the reasons I said before, where I expect Liverpool to be a better side, but the Sheffield United do make you work for the goals. And even when Liverpool were at the best last season, it's still, they still only scored three in two games. So I'm expecting Liverpool better side, but just two nil. Yeah, I think I think I'm going to go three, um, and I'm going to say nil simply because of Sheffield United's lack of attack, really. Mm. Um, and I think Liverpool first game in the Premier League without Van Dijk, I feel like the focus will be will, will be on it. Um, Sheffield United could obviously cause a problem from from certain set pieces, but you've got to get up the field to get them set pieces. Um, mind you, we've got Adzin in goal still. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I don't know. I I think this one will be quite comfortable. Like, not comfortable as in you know you do have you do have to work against this team without yeah. doubt. But I think last season when we faced them at Anfield. And they were they were more informed then than they than they are now. We we did really really dominate them, and I think Chris Wilder praised us actually after the match. Mm. Um, didn't really give them a sniff. So yeah, I think I'm going to go three nil. Um, but the, the the defense isn't easy to break through. You know, it's it, it could easily be be one nil or, or something like that. But I think Liverpool will win this one. Mm. Um, but yeah, we'll leave it there. We'll wrap up. So thanks for joining us, Dave. Yeah, thank you, Josh. <laughs> and we will be back next week to talk about whoever Liverpool are playing. <laughs> I can't remember okay, who it is. Who are they playing? Uh, I'm going to check that now. I'm not sure, you know. So Liverpool are playing <laughs> West Ham. West Ham. Mm. West Ham is Yeah, I'm also booked them recently. So uh, yeah. yeah, tune in next week for the West Ham preview. Mm. Thanks for tuning in. See you later. Cheers. You've been listening to the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel.